real good. It's real, real good. Man, is it good to worship? It is. It's good. It resets. It resets the uh, the soul. You know, it puts you on the path to say, in spite of whatever happens in our world, God knows what He's doing. You know, I mean, it's, think about it. I mean, it's been quite a two years. Two years ago this week, the world changed. Um, for the people living in Ukraine right now, the world changed weeks ago. These kinds of things continue to happen in our world. It's easy to wonder when it happens in the world, does God know what he's doing? When it happens in your life, even more so, Doubt tends to enter the equation. In fact, I think the enemy really uses times like that to whisper into your soul, are you sure God knows what he's doing? Can you really trust that God knows what he's doing? You know, there are certain verses in the Bible you think, like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's super meaningful, super deep, super powerful. I'm going to give you one right out of the gate uh, today. John chapter 16, verse 33 uh, near the end of, of that great sermon uh, that's in John, really, 13, 14, 15, 16. Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, as I have overcome the world. What does that mean? How does that play out? How, do, how does it really play out in day-to-day life and, and in the big picture of our lives, in the big picture of history even, how does that play out? I want to see if I can show you that today. I'm an 80s kid. I can't, I don't know, good or bad, whatever. I, I, I don't necessarily apologize for it. I, I grew up in the 80s. I, 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 I still like 80s music or as uh, one of my friends, now grown kids, calls it oldies music. I'm like, no, that's, that's, that, that's different. different. <clears throat> I grew up on, you know, shows like you know, Family Ties or The Cosby Show or, or the A-Team, right? You remember the A-Team? Like, right? And all those crazy characters, and they'd always set out on some crazy mission, and somewhere near the end, what was the guy's name? I think they called him Hannibal. The guy with the cigar would say, I love it. When a plan comes together. Exactly. Exactly. I love it when a plan comes together. You know, we're reminded over and over and over in Scripture that God knows exactly what he's doing. He always has, and he always will. The problem is we get caught up in moments where it looks like he doesn't. We get caught up in moments where, where, where God's timing seems off. Robert and I were talking about that right before church this morning, where it's so, so easy to look God's way and just yell, are you sure you know what you're doing? Yes. Yes. Let me show you. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it with me to Daniel chapter 9. You might remember we were in the middle of a sermon last week, and I told you I didn't have time to finish it. And so I'm going to review just slightly 
I'm going to add some new stuff, and then we're going to pick up and continue on and just, and just finish. And if you weren't here last week, that's okay, because I, I don't think you're going to be too lost. But we are in the middle of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, and more may have been written about Daniel chapter 9 than any other chapter. In fact, that we're going to isolate at the end of chapter 9 today, this, this whole text that ends up being about the 77s. There's more disagreement among Christians and scholars about this text than any other text in the book of Daniel. There is so much written about this, and I can pretty well guarantee you this. Whatever it is I say, someone will disagree with it. That's okay. That's okay. You know, and the big things, we have total agreement, right? Jesus came. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. We have agreement on that? Yeah, yeah. It's on the little details, we might see things differently. But I do want to share with you my take on this today. But to set it up, I want to remind you of a couple of things. One, Daniel chapter 8. We were there last week. You might remember that God predicted the rise of Alexander the Great. Right? And then the fall of Alexander the Great. And then God predicted the rise of, of someone who led in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a king named Antiochus Epiphanes that did horrible, horrible things to the Jewish people, to their temple, to their worship. He essentially set himself up as God and said, worship me. All of that was Daniel chapter 8. You might remember that Daniel chapter 8 prophesied... Uh, Daniel had these crazy, crazy visions, and if you've not read it, it's, it's worth reading sometime just to get it back into your mind, but he sees a ram, and he sees a goat, and the goat charges out of a certain direction and takes out the ram. Chapter 9, something interesting happens. Daniel begins to pray. It's a different moment. It's a different day. It's actually a different king. And Daniel begins to pray, and like he has done for years and years and years, he is praying for the restoration of his home. He was taken as a child, you remember, as a prisoner of war. It's now been decades and decades and decades. And Daniel is praying that the people of God be brought back, that his people be brought out of Babylon, back to Jerusalem, their home, that the city would be rebuilt that its temple would re be rebuilt, that its, its religion, essentially, would be rebuilt. He is praying that God would forgive and God would restore, and God gives him this crazy answer. But before I read it, you ever wonder sometimes, why exactly did they end up in this situation? Or maybe in your life sometimes, you get into a mess, you know, and, and you just... It's, we, we play naive a lot, so we look around our lives and we go, oh man, I am in a mess. And it's like, it's like scales have been lifted from our eyes and we have no idea how we got here. You know what I'm talking about. This was me every day when I was 16 years old. My room was a mess. But if you asked me how I got there, I had no clue, right? No idea how my room got this messy. A lot of us are like that 16-year-old. We look around our life and we go, I have no idea how my life got this messy. Really? No idea, you say? Right? And one of the things we know is that to come to grips with certain realities in your life, to move forward in healthy ways, often what has to happen is you have to ask yourself, okay, how did I get into this mess? 
And of course, you have to ask, how do I get out of it? But before you get to how did I get out of it, you have to ask, how did I get into it? Which is worth asking, why is it that Daniel and all his friends were taken as prisoners of war to Babylon back in the day? And the, the answer is long and complicated. You go back into the Old Testament and you've got the book of Deuteronomy with its promises of blessings and curses. One of the curses for disobedience was that, that if they rejected God, God would withhold his hand from them and that foreign countries would overtake them. And actually, this is literally what happened. The people rebelled against God and said, God, we don't really care about you. And God said, all right, let's see how you do without me. But it gets more specific than that. There's this crazy story, and I put this reference in your notes, 2 Kings chapter 20. I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm going to summarize it for you. The king in the day was King Hezekiah. He was the king of Jerusalem. And the prophet in the day was the prophet Isaiah. You've heard of him. In fact, you know of both of these guys because, because if people want to make up a book of the Bible, they usually call it Hezekiah, right? If you want to make up like a 60, I'm not saying you should, but if, if people say, oh, turn to the book of Hezekiah, because it sounds biblical, doesn't it? It's because it is. It's just not a Bible book. But Hezekiah King in a certain day, his primary enemy of the moment was the king of Assyria. They battled against each other greatly. And one day, Hezekiah became ill. Almost to the point of death. And Isaiah told him to put his house in order because he was going to die. And Hezekiah turned his face toward the Lord and prayed that he would still live. And the Lord answered his prayer and said, okay, you're going to have another, I think it was 15 years, but you're going to have another period of time where you live, where you're healthy, where you rule, all of that. And so he goes back to life, thanks the Lord, and says, oh man, that's good. Thank you, Lord. You ever been there? Life's miserable, you turn to God, you know, sort of deathbed. You, okay, God, I need you. I, like, I need you more than I've ever, ever, ever needed you. I need you to intervene right now. And God does, and you go, whew. Man, that's good. Now, how long do you remember, God? Yeah, suddenly things start rolling good again. You go back to living on your own. You get used to... This is what happened to Hezekiah. So Hezekiah was battling along with the king of Assyria and the king of Babylon, who, who is not the same king of Babylon in the book of Daniel, but a previous king of Babylon, sends some envoys, some, some leaders to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, to see Judah. And, and Hezekiah says, let me show you everything I got. And he opens up his palaces, and he opens up and he says, look at all the treasures we have. All the treasures over here, all the treasures over there. This is all 2 Kings chapter 20. And Isaiah goes back to him. And this is worth getting specific on. I don't have it on screen, but I want you to just realize this and just listen to this. Hezekiah said, well, the prophet said, hey, who were those guys? And Hezekiah said, from a distant land. They were from Babylon. And the prophet said, well, what did they see in your palace? And he said, they saw everything in my palace. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. <clears throat> Let's just think this through. So you just showed a foreign king all of your valuable treasures. Hmm. I, 
Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon and nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Do you know what a eunuch is? If you don't, look it up. I don't want to explain it in public. They will become eunuchs, some of your own flesh and blood, in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah's response is, oh, well, this is good, because it's going to happen to my descendants and not to me. That's literally. No, it's okay. It's just my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids. I'm not worried about them. This means that everything's okay. This is specifically and precisely why the book of Daniel takes place, why Babylon ends up overtaking. And remember, there's a big, big picture here. This is just the minute picture. The big picture is that the people for decades, the kings for decades, in fact, almost all of the kings of Israel, almost all of the kings of Judah, once they were separate countries, rejected and rebelled against the Lord. There are very, 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 very few kings in the Bible that you would say, that's a godly king. Until we begin to talk about the one we call the king of kings. So let me just remind you last week. I just want to catch you up, kind of the notes, right? We read Isaiah 46, verse 10. I will make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And from the east. I summon a bird of prey from a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. And what I have said, that I will bring about. And what I have planned, that I will do. Now, Isaiah, same Isaiah we're just talking about with Hezekiah, actually says this in the time of the Babylonians, in the time when Daniel is in, is in Babylon, and he is prophesying about the coming of Cyrus and the Persians, who the bird of prey referenced here is Cyrus the Great, who ends up ruling in Daniel's lifetime. So the Bible just, it fits together like this. I mean, it has its prophets and its histories and obviously its gospels later on. But God has always known what he was doing. And God has always been up to something. And so the one thing I said last week, it's the same thing I want to sort of sink in to our heads today is that God makes known the end from the beginning precisely because he is God. I mean, I've had a lot of plans in my life. You know how often my plans go my way? Every once in a while. <clears throat> Actually, fairly often when I'm up to destruction, right? Right? That My pride gets in the way a lot. My attitudes get in the way a lot. My sins certainly get in the way a lot. But I can't make known the end from the beginning. I can't. How's the war in Ukraine going to turn out? I don't know. When's the suffering in this world going to end? I don't know. This little pandemic that's been going on, like, what happens from here? I don't know. I can't make known the end from the beginning, but God can. And he makes known the end from the beginning precisely because he is God. So again, God predicted the rise, chapter 8, of Alexander the Great. 
Also, chapter 8, God predicted the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes, this madman who, who, who sort of had this unholy trinity of, of characteristics. He was full of pride. He claimed to be God. He had all of this destruction aimed at God's work and God's people. And in, both those, in, in those seasons, God's people suffered. In the season of Daniel, God's people suffered. Antiochus Epiphanes, God's people suffered. And along comes Daniel in chapter 9 saying, God, forgive us and take us home. God, forgive us and restore your temple. God, forgive us and rebuild Jerusalem. God, forgive us and rebuild the temple so we can go back to worshiping you. Because the entire reason they're here is because, in fact, that whole thing I read you, 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah's real issue is not just that, that he said, hey, look at all my stuff. And somehow the king of Babylon fell in love with his stuff and said, oh, I'm going to take that stuff. Although, you know, that is kind of what kings do, if you think about it. But the real issue is that Hezekiah was basically saying, hey, you know, I'll align myself with you because we've got this common enemy called Assyria. And I will, how about you and I? How about we're real friendly with each other? I've got resources, so you can see mine. You've got resources. Why don't, we, why don't we work together against this common enemy? Which doesn't sound like such a bad idea, except in 2 Kings 20, you have this contrast. You have, on one hand, him with Hezekiah, no options, going, oh my gosh, I need God, only God can heal me. And now he's got an enemy, and instead of turning to God, he's turning to the king of Babylon. He's, he's <clears throat> I don't know, can I be more specific? He's looking for a political solution instead of relying on the Lord. You do know we're not that different, right? So you have these kings, right? Let me, let me set up Daniel chapter 9 for you. Daniel 9. I'm not going to read all of the early part of it. We're going to actually come back next sermon um, that I give and come back and go through slowly through the rest of Daniel 9. But I just want to summarize the intro parts to you. Daniel 9 verse 4 says, I prayed to the Lord my God and I confess, Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him, who keeps his commandments. We have sinned and we have done wrong and we have been wicked and we have rebelled and we have turned away from your commands and your laws. And we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our ancestors and to all the people of the land. And he goes on here and he basically is, he's repenting, he's, he's turning to God, he's confessing sin, he's fasting along the way, he is showing great humility to God. And by verse 19, he prays this prayer. He says, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear. Lord, act for your sake. My God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. He's basically saying, God, you, you allowed shame to happen for yourself. And restore your name in this world. Verse 20 says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen earlier in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. It's kind of interesting that this happens at 
the time of the evening sacrifice, given that the temple has been destroyed and there are no sacrifices happening back in Jerusalem, back, in, back home. But he's still praying at the time of the evening sacrifice. And the angel instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. That little phrase, you are highly esteemed, is interesting. The angel Gabriel shows up in the gospel of Luke chapter 1 to a virgin we call Mary. And he says actually the same thing, greetings. You're highly esteemed. You are highly favored. That is actually the answer, I think, to what we're about to read. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision, verse 23 says. Here's where it gets complicated. We said last week, you guys are smart, smarter than me in a lot of cases. We can figure this out together. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And I'm going to stop just right there and note that the word place is not actually in the original language. It just says to anoint the most holy. The assumption of the translators was place, but I would suggest that it might mean most holy person. Seventy-sevens are decreed. What? Keep reading. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, now to be clear, the phrase anointed one here is the Hebrew Mashiach. It's where our word Messiah comes from. It is the Hebrew word that the word in Greek, Christ, is the equal to, right? So he's talking about from the time to restore from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah until the Christ the ruler comes there will be seven sevens and there will be 62 sevens and it Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and a trench but in times of trouble and after the 62 sevens the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing and the people and then it gets more complicated the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood, and war will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. And he, and the he, we're not quite sure, is he the end? Is, is he the ruler? Is he the Messiah? What he are we talking about? He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, and in the middle of the seven, are you lost yet? Totally. Totally. Yeah, me too. Good luck figuring it out. I'm glad you came to church today. <laughs> we'll see if we can make it make sense. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. That last phrase, really all of verse 27, is one of the most difficult to translate verses in all of the Hebrew Bible. I wouldn't pretend to be. I took a year of Hebrew. You know how much Hebrew I remember? Enough to tell you that the Hebrew word for Messiah is Mashiach. 
Not enough to begin to translate this. But translators, when they work on it, have trouble. People who do this for a living have trouble sort of making sense of what it says. So I'm going to tell you there's a lot of interpretations, and I don't have time to get into all of them. Some people will say, hey, this is telling us about Jesus. You think? Okay, good. Good, good. Yeah, it's telling us about Jesus, right? It's like, hey, you know, Sunday school, little, little Billy, little Tommy, little Julie. Not little Julie, little kid, you know. Hey, what's this, what's this story about? Anybody know? Jesus! Yes, yes, but let me show you why. Scholars will greatly debate whether this is about his first coming or his second coming or both. And some scholars will say that right in the middle of the text, there's a thousands of year gap of time that is sort of unexplained that happens. And so you go from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. Personally, I don't see that. I'm just telling you, it's my interpretation. I don't see a gap or a time gap in the text. But let me make this make sense. I'm going to go back through it very slowly, and I'm going to explain pretty much word for word what this is talking about. But I want you to see the big contrast. In the context of Daniel's prayer, Daniel is asking for his home, for his religion, for his temple where the sacrifice would happen, for all of that to be restored. And I actually think God's answer goes beyond Daniel's request to the ultimate answer, to his son, who is the answer to all these problems. All that said, remember Antiochus Epiphanes last week? Literally said he was Zeus in the flesh, he was God in the flesh. Right? It's what epiphanies means, God made manifest. God manifest, if we read this right, is actually different at every turn than Antiochus Epiphanes. Jesus was not filled with pride. Jesus didn't have to claim to be God because he was God in the flesh. Antiochus set out to destroy God's people. Jesus set out to deliver them. So let's go back through this one more time. Verse 20 says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen earlier, that was the angel Gabriel that he had seen earlier, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me, Daniel, I come now to give you insight and understanding. So he's going to give him some insight that Daniel doesn't yet have. Daniel's already been told about one like a son of man, right? You remember Daniel chapter 7, right? The ancient of days and the son of man coming on the clouds. He's already been told about the kingdom of God that is going to come and take over the world and last forever and ever and ever. He's already been told about a rock that will destroy, the, that, that the world would destroy itself with kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, and that a rock will come, it will knock over the kingdoms of the world and set up the kingdom of the Lord that will last forever. He now reminds Daniel that I've come to give you insight and understanding, and as soon as you began to pray, God sent a word, a word went out, which I have come to tell you. For you, again, are highly esteemed. This is very, very, very similar to Gabriel. This is kind of what Gabriel does. It's like his introductory line. Hey, greetings. Don't be afraid. You're highly favored. 
That word highly favored over in Luke chapter 1 is our word for grace. You who are highly graced. He tells Mary, the Lord is with you. This text is telling us that the Lord will be with us. Verse 24 says, 77s are decreed for you and your people in the holy city to finish transgression and do a bunch of other things. Let me explain this. The 77s are decades of sevens, right? They, they had a big deal about Sabbaths, right? And they had not only uh, Sabbaths like weekly, but there were, there were things like Sabbath days, and there were extra celebrations, and there were, there were Sabbath years where they would go every, every seven years, they would let the land rest. And Daniel actually read earlier in chapter 9 from the prophet Jeremiah that he knew that God's people would be out of home, out of Jerusalem, in Babylon for 70 years. And it's almost been 70 years since Daniel came to Babylon. And so here, he's basically praying, God, do what you've promised, that this 70 years take us back home. And the angel basically answers, look, the big answer is not just 70 years, but 77s that are decreed for your people. So 77s, if you think of them in years, 70 times 7, somebody help me with the math here. 490 years. 490 years. Exactly. Exactly. This is written in about 538 B.C., and it's going to be another while, another hundred years or so, before Artaxerxes in the prophet in, in the book of Nehemiah actually issues the order to rebuild Jerusalem. But I'll, I'll get to that. He says, "Look, 490 years are decreed for your people in your holy city to do what." to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to end or seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Okay. I'm not a rocket scientist. That's about Jesus. That's about what Jesus did. In fact, that's entirely what Jesus did. We'll keep going. Rebellion will be finished and the end to sin will be made. Atonement for iniquity will take place. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Vision and prophecy will be sealed up and the most holy will be anointed. I think the most holy in this case is not a place, it's a person. The person of Jesus Christ. Verse 25 no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens, and then there will be 62 sevens, which ends up with sort of, again, let me check my math here, but 69 sevens. That first seven sevens is 49 years and seems to be a certain period of time. And actually... It's talking about that first seven sevens, the period of time from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So the first 49 years is the rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding of Jerusalem, rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. 
There are a lot of decrees that sort of set this about, but one of the most significant was in 458 B.C. So if you want to have fun with this, get your calculator out. I know you have them. You're looking at a phone anyway here and there through the sermon. You might as well, you know, be looking at You're reading your Bible on the phone. I always assume that. Yeah. Yeah. So get your calculator out. Put in 458. Now just pause there for a second. He tells us that it'll take 49 years, the first seven sevens, for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He's talking about that period of time. And then he talks about another period of time with 62 sevens. And we add them together, again, seven sevens and 62 sevens. You have 69 sevens. And if you multiply that out, you have 483 years. 483 years. So take your calculator, take 458 and subtract from that 483. Somebody tell me the number that's left. Certainly somebody looked at a calculator. What? 25. Negative 25, that's correct. Now, now, time was marching down, our way of looking at it, right, the BCs, right? You realize they didn't look at it as BC and AD, right? They didn't know about Jesus yet. They, 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 this is our way of marking time. But, but if you go from the time the, the announcement went out, 458, you go 483 years later, you get 25. And there is no year zero, so really year 26, if, if you... Fix the math and get the math right. Year 26. This is, I would argue, precisely the time that the Messiah is anointed in the sense that not only is he born around, we would say, a little before zero, right? Before Jesus, what? We, the Romans actually got the dates wrong. And we don't have to get into that. But the bottom line here is when we get to 25, 26 AD, we have the Messiah actually walking on the earth, doing his ministry, right? He goes to the temple several times, which has been rebuilt and actually destroyed again and then rebuilt again. And so he goes to the temple, he does his ministry, he is anointed. He, he actually, you remember, he came into Jerusalem on a donkey, like anointed as a king, fairly. Where were we? After 62 sevens, well... From the time that the word goes out to restore and build Jerusalem, the anointed one, the ruler comes, there'll be seven sevens, 62 sevens, 483 years. And it will be rebuilt, the, the Jerusalem, with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And actually, you can read about that in the book of Nehemiah. It, it all happened. And after 62 sevens, so 483 years, <clears throat> the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. See, mercy was always in the plan of God. Grace was always in the plan of God. Sacrifice and servanthood were always in the plan of God. And God has always known what he was doing. The specifics here are amazingly precise in that they're giving us the rebuilding and the time of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. They're giving us the time of the coming and the death of the Messiah and actually, by the end of these verses, I think they're giving us the timing of the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of sacrifices, all of it under that umbrella of ending sin 
and bringing atonement. Now, some would say, look, we don't have to be this specific about time. I can live with that because you might remember a parable Jesus. Remember Jesus one time was asked, I think it was Peter, said, how many times do we have to forgive? You remember that one? How many times do we have to forgive? Do we have to forgive him seven times? And Jesus said that, no, you should forgive your brother 70 times seven times. So they say math. We find it easy to get hung up in the specifics. I think in a sense, God is saying after a complete amount of time, I have a plan. And the plan involves the ruler, the Messiah, the anointed one. But it also involves his death. Now, you might remember when Jesus came, who remembered that it involved his death? Only Jesus. Because God's always had a plan. In fact, from the beginning... Jesus made it clear that he was going to die, that he was going to rise again. It's just no one believed him. It gets a little more complicated from here. We get into these verses that talk about the people of the ruler will come, who will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood, and war will continue to the end, and desolations that have been decreed, and he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, and in the middle of that seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice. And this is where some scholars will say, look, there's a gap here, and Jesus came, and Jesus died, and now there's a thousands of year gap, and then suddenly this is talking about the end of time and the Antichrist. I don't personally read it that way, but I, I am okay with being corrected. I don't, I don't make known the end from the beginning. Let me tell you what I think it means. I think it means that the Babylonians destroyed the temple in Daniel's day because the people rebelled against God. The abomination was their rejection of God. So the abomination here would be the rejection of God again in the time of the Messiah. It's the crucifixion of Christ, which in, think about it, the ultimate sacrifice is rejected by most of the people. In fact, the very reason the ruler, the Christ, is crucified is because of the rejection of the people. Because of their sin, and frankly still, because of mine. So I take this to mean, especially when you get into the nuances of the way the translation works out, that the people of the ruler are God's people, and that they reject God again, and that leads to not only the death of the Messiah, but it leads to the end of sacrifice. Again, just connect some dots here. When Jesus was crucified, you remember there's the part about how the veil in the temple is torn in two? It's a little hard to do sacrifice when the veil of the temple is torn in two because the sacrifice happened inside there. And Jesus actually talked about with his disciples that a time was coming when the temple and all those things would be torn down. And in AD 70, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem again. And there have been no sacrifices in Jerusalem since. I would argue because the ultimate sacrifice has already taken place. Let's maybe say it this way. Daniel 8 was about a ram and a goat, two kings, right? And all the fighting that would happen in the world. Daniel 9 is not about a ram or a goat. It's about a lion who is a lamb. 
who would lay down his life for us. So three very specific prophecies to make sure we fill in here. Number three, I should have said this before. I think I totally skipped this. God sent his son, the king of kings. That would be up with one and two, I think. God predicted the rise of Alexander the Great. God predicted the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes. God sent his son, the king of kings, to die for our sins. There we go. There we go. And to be more specific, we get three more detailed prophecies. We get, number one, the timing of the end, right? The whole thing about the 483 years. We get the timing of the end, not the timing of the end of time, but the timing of the end of the old covenant. Galatians 4 says, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a virgin, born of a woman, born under the law. It goes on from there. We get the prediction or the prophecy of the death of the anointed one, right? Mercy and grace had always been God's plan. And we get the prophecy of the end of atonement or the ultimate atonement and the end of sacrifice. The ultimate atonement and the end of sacrifice. Right? Romans 3.25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate God did his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Goes on there. First John 2.2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for also for the sins of the whole world. First John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Atonement is just a big word that speaks of the covering of our sins, the reconciliation that happens with God because of it, the forgiveness that comes with God and what God does. In the end, he makes known the what is to come. He makes known the end from the beginning precisely, specifically, and exactly because he is God. So what does that have to do with me? Two things. One, Anybody looked around our world lately and thought, God, do you know what you're doing? God always has. God always will. Two, when you make a mess of your life, you have to say, how'd I get into it? And own that. That's what Daniel was doing when he was praying. And you have to ask, how do I get out of it? And the answer is you don't on your own. You get out of it through what Jesus has done for you. You get out of it with Jesus with you, in you. You get out of it relying on Jesus and all he has done. That's the answer. That always has been. That always will be. If you need Jesus today, man, I want to give you that chance. If you need Jesus today, I want you to have what he offers. This is telling us that God knew his son would die on the cross. That God knew that we needed that forgiveness. Daniel is saying, God, would you just rebuild your home, my home, for your namesake? And God's answer is, 
Well, yes, I will. But not only will I do that, I will go past that. And I will give my son, the anointed, the king of kings, for you. Do you have him? I hope so. We end with two prayers always. The first is a prayer of salvation. If you need Jesus today, maybe you'd receive him right here, right now. You pray with me just like this. Dear Jesus, thank you that you are God in the flesh. Thank you for dying for my sins. I confess them. And I not only confess them, I, I turn to you, I repent of them. And I ask you, Jesus, to put grace and mercy and forgiveness in my life. In fact, even more, I don't deserve you. But I ask you to take my life. Put you in my life, God. Be my God, Jesus. I want to worship you and not me. I want to walk with you, Jesus. Pray in your name. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that for the very first time, man, I'd love to know that. It's such a big deal when we begin faith. You know, it's such a cool deal when we realize that God is from the beginning, had this plan, know what he was doing. And God wants you. Man, we'd love to celebrate with you if you've prayed just this way. Would you let me know? You can tell me on a communication card. You can tell me after service. I'll be around. You can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. If you're online, I, man, I'd love to hear from you. We'd love to talk about what it means to be a Christian. We'd love to talk about baptism and, and church and the Bible and all the things we do to encourage you. I realize a message like this, there's a lot going on, and I, I've read this text I don't know how many times since, since God put Daniel in my heart. And I got to be honest, this is the one I most looked at and thought, uh, how are we going to make sense of this? Whether you're still confused or not, we make sense of it with one word, Jesus. Jesus is enough. He put an end to sin. He brought atonement. Jesus is enough. If you're a believer in Jesus, would you pray the second prayer with me, our prayer of application? Dear Jesus, thank you that you came willingly, purposefully. Thank you that you came not to be served, but to serve to give your life as a sacrifice for my sins. Thank you that you are enough, Jesus.
Help me to always remember that I have you. That's enough. That you know what you're doing. That you make known the end from the beginning. Lord, we pray for our world. We pray for your people. Like Daniel, we pray. Lord, forgive. And Jesus, we thank you that you do. In Jesus' name. Man, I'm so glad you're worshiping with us today. We're singing another song, right? That's good. That's good. Before we sing, let me just encourage you. We'd love to hear from you. We have baskets in the back for communication cards. We have an offering box in the back. If God's done something in your life, this has meant something to you, and you want to give in that way, it's all there. God is good. He does know what he's doing. Let's trust him.